Hi everyone, this is Nature Tripping. I'm Cathy. And I'm Jo. Welcome to our podcast. It's about going outside to experience the wildlife that's all around us. We're going to be chatting about where we are and what's happening. But sometimes we'll just leave the microphones recording so we can spend some time just listening. So, yeah, so there's two trails here. And what happens is, if we strike up a hare and it runs, it knows exactly where it is and it knows the fastest route out. So they have these little runways and motorways as escape routes. And when they do strike up, in two seconds, it'll be running at 40 miles an hour. Literally in two seconds. So it's got a faster acceleration than a Ferrari. They're such fun creatures. For this episode of Nature Tripping, we are out on the moors again, but we're not in West Yorkshire. We've come a little bit further south to North Derbyshire and we're on Bleaklow. It's early February not very cold so it's a quite a good day for being out on the moors looking for hares. This episode is all about not your average hare it's about mountain hares and we're here with an expert. Carlos would you like to introduce yourself? Thank you Joe and Kathy. very kind. I'm Carlos Bedson and I'm wildlife biologist from Manchester Metropolitan University. And you've been studying mountain hares on these hills, of dark, the moors of Dark Peak, haven't you, for a few years now? Since 2017, I started the first new set of surveys of mountain hares. And now we're in the seventh year of surveys. And how did you get interested in mountain hares in Dark Peak area? I'm also a fell runner, so I have run over... Bleaklow and Kinder Scout and out with friends noticed these beautiful fluffy white hares hiding amongst the peat and the heather since 15-20 years and thought they're fun. I wonder how many there are in this large area. Previously I worked in a business career and thought I like wildlife, I like being outdoors So I studied conservation biology. Then I went to Montana in the USA and was very lucky working on grizzly bear and wolf monitoring programs and learning how professional government agencies count animals. So returning to the UK, I thought, Let's see if we can apply some of those principles to this isolated population Mm. of mountain hares here in the Peak District. I'd like to just uh, ask a very simple question, which is, what's the difference between a hare and a rabbit? How would you know whether you're looking at a hare or a rabbit? Rabbits are slightly smaller, stockier and boxier, and they've got shorter ears, and they also eat 
grass and they can be generalists with what they eat. Rabbits live in burrows and usually on farms. Hares, we have two types of hare. We have a European brown hare, which also lives on farms and arable land. And then we have mountain hares. But hare species have longer ears, longer heads, you know, almost horse-like their head. And they're bigger and they've got bigger back legs. They're very fast runners. So a brown hare or a mountain hare can run up to 40 miles an hour. Fantastic. And the difference between brown hare and mountain hare is that in winter, the mountain hare coat turns white. So you have arctic creatures out on the moors mm. of England. A bit magical. A lot of the moorland looks kind of black or brown with bits of green bilberry, but we're actually, we've got our eyes peeled for a white fluffy blob. That's effectively what we might see running around in the distance. Absolutely. So hare species are nocturnal, so they come out at night to feed and socialise, but they also sometimes wake up during the day, particularly this time in the afternoon, come out to forage. And so we may see one or two moving around, but most of them at this point are asleep or they're just hiding. They want to stay out of sight of predators. In fact, on the way up, we saw some fox scats. Mm. So there are predators around here that hares will be scared of. So they will hide in the deep vegetation or in the gullies. Over there, you can see on the side mm. of that mound, there's a dark hole. That's the kind of place that a mountain hare would sort of nestle into so, to so hide away. Yeah, it's not really a burrow so much as a cave. And yeah. A sort of little cave between the peat and the heather, isn't it? Exactly mm. that. So they'll just sort of back into it. And, and then, then they've got their big ears. They can hear you coming at 100 metres away. I mean, literally, you can do your zip up and it will startle their hair 100 metres away. They can hear that well. And they've got eyes either side of their head so they can see sort of 360 degrees they're predator avoiders you know you said they went white in winter when do they go white in october november so mountain hare has a brown coat through the summer which camouflages it against the brown grasses and the vegetation it's very hard to see a mountain hare beyond about 50 meters range in the summer because they camouflage so well and then as winter approaches, sort of late November, the days are getting shorter, so there's less daylight, and it's colder, so the air temperature has gone down. And that triggers a biological change in the mountain hair that they start this white coat. And actually what is happening is, in the fur, they stop producing brown melanin pigment so the follicles are hollow and that's why they're white they're hollow because it insulates them against the cold and it's white and it camouflages them against snow except we're getting less and less snow well aren't we that is very true so here we have no snow today and there is much less snow than we all experienced say 20 years ago 
So that camouflage characteristic that they have is less benefit. And actually what we have is almost the reverse situation, which is that we can go out and see white hairs against a black peaty or green and brown background. I wonder if they might be able to adapt, so not turn white. So there have been some genetic studies in Scotland on that basis, and they've also counted the number of snow-free days, which are now, I think, 35 days more in Scotland than 50 years ago. So they're now looking to see if mountain hair coat colour uh, that duration is shrinking mm. as well. Mm. So, yeah, in the long term, that adaption is likely that they may not pr- produce or grow that white fur anymore, which is kind of a shame because that's why people find them so beautiful when they come out onto the moors <laughs> of Derbyshire and Yorkshire and they see the white hair and they think it's like Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> But maybe one day those hairs will be brown. And most mountain hairs in Britain are in Scotland, aren't they? So why, why have we got hairs here? That's correct. So mountain hairs died out in England 6,000 years ago, after the Ice Age. When it got warmer, they died out. Yeah. Or they moved up to Scotland and stayed in Scotland. So we didn't have any mountain hares for centuries, for thousands of years. There was no mountain hares when the Romans were here or when William the Conqueror was here or Henry VIII was roaming around. There were no mountain hares in England. And then in the 1870s, some sporting landowners in the Peak District decided to get some mountain hares from Scotland. So, in fact, over the other side of Home Moss, a farmer told me his great-great-grandfather brought some mountain hares down from Scotland in crates on the train. (laughs) It's amazing to think of mountain hares on a train. And they released them on Saddleworth Moor. And there was also some released over at Bolsterstone, which is... uh, west of Sheffield, on the moors over there. And those hares ran out onto the moors and thrived and survived. So they introduced them to hunt, basically, or to chase or whatever? They wanted it to look like Scotland. Ornamental purposes. (laughs) Like rhododendrons. Yeah. (laughs) Partly, and also to shoot. So they shoot grouse as a sporting interest, and they also wanted to shoot mountain hares as well. And so that these hares have survived here 150 years, I think is testimony to a good job that those people did. Well, the hares must have found the habitat conducive. It's uplands, it's cold and wet, it's the kind of environment that hares like, and there is an abundance of heather here, which is their favourite food. They shelter in heather, they nestle into it and they make a little sort of hole which is called a form so they can get inside a clump of heather, nibble a little circle and sit in that. It keeps them out of the wind and they can literally sit and eat where they are. And 
In winter, 90% of their diet is heather. In the summertime, they also eat grasses and berries and moss as well. But heather is their main food resource, which mountain hares in Britain are totally associated and dependent on. In um, culture or in society, hares have got a, quite a symbolic position, aren't they? There's all these phrases that people use, aren't they? Like Mad March hares or herring about. Hair-brained or a hair brain scheme. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and so they're mainly solitary, aren't they, hares? But there are times when they do hair about and socialise. They do. So most of the time they are on their own, but when it comes to springtime, if you're lucky, you will see groups of hares chasing each other, and it's typically males chasing females, and she will push him away and box at him to keep him away. But sometimes the male will just pester and pester the female and just follow her around a metre behind her wherever she's walking he's not going to let her go and uh, if she runs away he will run after her and eventually wear her down because he wants to enjoy himself with her So having watched hares a lot you can see why those terms came into being. Absolutely because sometimes they're just become manic and a couple of kilometers that way actually one april afternoon i saw six hares chasing around each other for about 20 minutes and they were just running full tilt up and down the moors through the peat gullies and they're having such fun they were happy in the sunshine but absolutely bonkers as well in the springtime the new baby hares are born aren't they And they're called leverets. They are leverets. Typically they will be born early April. Very hard to find any at all. I've probably only seen about four or five over several years because they're tiny and small. And when they're born, she will put them in different corners. So she'll put one over here, one over there, one over there. And she visits each leveret for five minutes a day. She goes, suckles them for five minutes, and then leaves it, and it stays hiding. And then she comes back the next day. So they don't do much leverets until they grow. But they grow up to adult size within eight weeks. Now, if you're really lucky and you come out on the moors, May and June and you see a fully grown hair, and you look at it, if its coat is perfect without a blemish or a mark, if the hair looks athletic and strong, it's probably a new hair that was just born two or three months ago. So they look like, you know, they'd look like film stars. (laughs) They just look so perfect and Mm. so beautiful. That'll be a new hair that didn't exist until like two or three months ago. And they'll have how many leverets per litter? One to six, and they have up to three litters a year. So they're prolific breeders. Mm. And they also do this fantastic thing called superfoetation. 
What is superfoetation? It means she can carry two letters oh. from two different fathers at the same time. And keep one in while she delivers the first lot. Yeah. Oh, blame. I know. So they're <laughs> such talented creatures. And how long do hares live? Till normally about three years. I think the longest they had was, I think they had one live about nine years. Yeah. So, but yeah, three years. This is really wobbly, so just be slow and careful. See all those berries there? And there are strawberries, it? Yes, because the bulbul's got no leaves on yeah. it. Yeah. This is gorgeous. So you've spent a lot of time out here and in other locations in the uplands making friends with the hares. Can you tell us a bit about your research? So I put together a series of studies which basically said, where are the hares? Can we draw a map of where they are? The mountain hares The mountain hares. Yeah. And then what's the best way of counting mountain hares? And then how many are there actually? So three simple questions, which took several years to answer. And so to understand where they are, I used what we call citizen science data, which is people going out on the moors, they see a hare, they write down where they were, and they send it into a record centre or to the Mammal Society and say, oh, I saw a hare on this date at this location. So I gathered eight and a half thousand records of mountain hare locations over the past 20 years. And I also did some clever stuff with some statistics and some vegetation maps so that I could predict where mountain hares are and where they occur and also using climate data as well. And that showed they're occupying, at the moment, roughly an area of about 170 square kilometres. That's over Home Moss, Bleakloch, and Derwent Edges and Kinder Scout. OK, so the original Victorian population that was emptied out of the, car, the box on the train from Scotland um, has expanded across the Dark Peak. Absolutely. And so there were some nice natural history books from 1910, reports in 1956 and 1971, where you can actually sort of map the progress of the mountain hares and see how they've moved around the moors. And now they cover a very large wide area so they've really succeeded which is pretty unusual because typically when we have what is a reintroduction of a hare species or a rabbit species 
most of them die within the first six weeks of being let out because they're scared, they're frightened, they don't know where to eat, and they get picked off by predators. So to get a population that succeeds is unusual and fantastic. And do you think that they're spreading further or that they've reached the limits of their geographical area? I think they have stopped expanding because they are covering the uplands. There was a small area down to the southeast towards Chatsworth where there were some mountain hares but there aren't any there anymore. And then I had some fantastic help from Cathy who went to Rishworth Moor North of the M62. And found no hair pellets <laughs> there. So we know that they don't go further beyond the M62. They've got to get over the M62. So they're constrained by Sheffield, Manchester and motorways, etc. And they're high up at elevations of five or 600 metres where there's no houses, there's no roads, there's no people. How many metres up are we at the moment? So we're at 533 metres today. OK. So back to the research. So there was the citizen science surveys. What did you do next? I remember hearing that you went out at night quite a lot. In 2017-18 winter, it was the winter of the beast from the east when we had seven <laughs> snowfalls. Little did I know, as I'd planned all these night surveys, so I went out on home moss with a thermal imaging camera looking for mountain hares, sometimes walking in waist-deep snow. But you're just back from Montana, so I'm sure it was fairly easy compared to there. <laughs> it, was, it was horrible. It was freezing cold, minus 10 degrees, plus wind chill. And the thermal imaging camera was sophisticated equipment. It needed to be set up on a tripod. So I had to stand still in the wind for about 15 minutes at a time and very slowly survey the area, sort of 360 degrees, looking for mountain hares. And that took time to understand the heat signatures from a mountain hare and to distinguish that from rocks which had absorbed heat from the sunshine or what have you through the day. So it took a lot of experience to get used to figuring out what's a mountain hare and what's how a it rock? looks. Well, what about <laughs> grouse? Did they? Well, did grouse also, yeah. but grouse is very interesting with a thermal imager because what you actually see is a dark blob with a very tiny white bit, which is his head, because the dark blob is his feathers, which stops any heat coming out. So grouse is amazing. So all you just see is this white triangle of a head on the mm -hmm. thermal imaging camera. <laughs> so you progressed from doing these surveys to actually undertaking a PhD. So with this PhD, I did what we call a survey methods comparison, which is to say, if I go out at night with a thermal imaging camera, how many hairs do I see versus when I go out at daytime. And for sure at night, I see three times at least as many mountain hares because they're nocturnal creatures. They come out, they're feeding, 
they're playing, I've seen their natural behaviour, so they don't know they're being watched. Now, at daytime, I'll go out and I'll see a third of the number of hares, but I can also use some statistics, which gives me the sort of proportion of how many hares in the total population I'm seeing. So I see about 20% of the whole population by day. You've correlated your nighttime with your daytime. Exactly. Right. So, so you can then just go out in the daytime yeah. and be confident. You don't have to go out in the middle of the night with a thermal imaging camera anymore. Exactly. Yeah. Now, some people will say, go out at night because you're going to see lots more. But I don't need to because I know the proportion that I'm seeing. And it's easier by day to get around it's actually faster by day than moving through the dark at night on a treacherous landscape and i also get to take photographs as well which is good to share with people and you can get other people doing it too yeah and so in 2019 we had six volunteers covering the whole of the peak district so we did a whole population survey we covered several hundred kilometres of transects, that's straight line walking, and estimated the population for the whole of the Peak District as approximately three and a half thousand mountain hares. And how many are there in the whole of Britain? Well, in Scotland, the last estimate was over a hundred thousand. Yeah. So there's lots in Scotland yeah. and it's a big area. Yeah. But here we've got maybe three and a half thousand, maybe a bit more, often a bit less. Yeah. It's small population, so it's pretty vulnerable. So you've surveyed the whole of the uplands. You've discovered that there's 3,000 mountain hares approximately in that space. And have you got any more detail on what particular aspects of the habitat most suit the hares? Because the uplands, I guess, is a bit of a mosaic, isn't it? You've got different types of habitats in the uplands. Absolutely. So over there on home moss, it's very pinky and it's much cotton grass environment, blanket bog. On the shoulders of these hills, we have a heathery environment, which is often managed for, for raising grouse. And then also on the slopes, so you can see off Bearhome moss, that yellowy bit, that's what we call acid grassland. Millennia. Yeah, yeah. so yeah, tussock grass. And it's not very conducive to any animals. Even sheep don't like it that much. So you've got these different characteristics. Mountain hares, they like heather, so they like grouse moors. However, we see the most mountain hares, the highest densities, on these blanket bog areas, particularly where it's been restored, such as where we're stood, mm. where you can see heather, sphagnum moss, feather moss, different grasses, lichen-y kinds of things. There's so much different vegetation. There are berries that we pass, so you get crowberries and bilberries, cloudberry as well. 
It's a really lush environment. It's a and much it, more coherent ecosystem than just a load of melina grass. Oh, it is. Yeah. yeah. And it's been restored by re-wetting it, hasn't it? Exactly. In, in the past few years. Yes. So the gully blocking is, I mean, you can see the pools of water here and it hasn't really rained for several days, but the water is still standing here. So it's a nice lush environment and particularly in the summer, uh, it, there are sort of ponds still around and there's, you know, moisture in the landscape that uh, is helpful for hares. Cathy, when you were helping Carlos with the hare surveys, um, you had a little gadget. It was like a laser gun that you were able to point into the distance. Yeah, so I had to walk along my transect looking all over for hares and then if I spotted one... I had to use this laser beam thingy to estimate the distance of how far it was away from me. OK, and what's that piece of kit called, Carlos? So that's a laser range finder. OK. So it's, it sends a signal, a laser, to a point which reflects back to it and then it can tell what distance it is to that point. And um, I think the furthest distance I measured was 740 metres. To a hair. Uh, in fact, uh, one guy looked at me and says, I don't believe you. And I said, but it was on the side of a hill and I could see it with binoculars yeah. and I got the laser rangefinder on it and it said 740 metres. So, and it's a tiny white dot, but you just know, you can tell that it's a mountain hair. And so what you then do is some trigonometry to say, well, where is that hair on the map? And where is it according to the line that you're walking? And using that trigonometry, you can start plotting them and estimating the number of hairs there are in that area using some uh, sophisticated statistics and maths. Mm. So, so that works really well. Well, I think it's really interesting to show the um, progression of an idea. You've got an, an idea, a question, haven't you, about how many hairs are there and where are they? And you like the progression from citizen science to getting out and finding them at night, observing them, and then measuring them. The evolution of the methodology. Exactly. Yeah. And the other thing I liked about doing the surveys was when I had to go out on the transect and count poo, look for paths, look for forms, and you know, generally looking for the signs of the hairs. So I know I was walking with my head down all the time. I might have missed some actually running around, but you know, it's quite interesting to just do detective work and look for evidence of, of them. It's fantastic. <laughs> so I think what was implicit or you were saying, you've done some studies in Montana, which is all these big creatures, <laughs> Wolves like and whatnot. bears and you know, mountain lions and so forth, although you hardly ever see them. But here, in the Peak District, on these uplands, you've just got so much natural history about hares. It's fantastic. You get to see how they live, where they sleep, how they dig and sort of shape through the peat. And they're like little engineers sometimes. I mean, sometimes they do burrow and they can make a burrow that's like one or two metres deep. Um, you see what they're eating. You see the pellets that they emit. What about the pellets then? Well, the pellets, they're <laughs> also information because they tell you what they've eaten. So that they've eaten heather or in the, in the summer, the pellets are a different colour because mm. they're so much more full of grass as well. But they actually eat their poo, don't they? 
hares and, you know, rabbits, they struggle to digest what is tough vegetation matter. So it goes into a separate cubicle in their stomach. It's a separate chamber and it ferments and digests. They poo it out and then they eat it again and then they can get the proper nutrients out of it. So they eat their food twice. The intestines are full of bacteria which can digest the, yeah. um, the woody stuff that they're eating. Yeah. Because heather's pretty woody, isn't it, actually? Lignin and stuff. It is. Yeah. And in winter, it's, it's really hard and chewy, so it's not easy to eat. But they do eat it and they can manage it. Mm. We've encountered what is a latrine of a mountain hare who appears to have been coming back to the same spot time and again pooing and there must be about 40 or 50 pellets in such a small area it's like a plate you know it's the size of a dinner plate there's all these pellets here the pellets are wet maybe from the rain or maybe they've been literally emitted this morning by a hare. So what we usually see is random pellets sort of dispersed thinly over the ground, but here they're concentrated in an area. So you know that a mountain hare is coming back again and again to the same spot. And there's lots of nice heather and some berries and grasses growing up. So it clearly loves this location. There by the look. There's a lot of out today. In the summer, you get soft heather shoots growing up through the ground, especially where the ground has been burned. And hares love that. They love this very soft heather. There is a relationship between the hares and the grouse moor management. So grouse like to nest in heather. It's, it's a great place for them to be. And they also like heather, which is about 10 years old, give or take, because they eat it at head height. They don't have to bend over, so they can just nibble it. It's just like a foot high or 10 inches high. They can just stand and eat the heather. Whereas mountain hares really love the soft heather that's about two years old, right. that's very new coming up. So you see the, these burn patches, they were burned like two or three years ago. Sometimes if you go and sit on one of those at about six or seven o'clock in the evening in June or July, you can suddenly find yourself surrounded by four or five mountain hares that suddenly appear on a heather patch. So they've just sort of congregated and they love those patches. Mm. Does that bring the mountain hare into conflict with the grouse shooting estate? The grouse shooting management people love mountain hares and are very supportive of mountain hares being on their estates generally as a symbol of biodiversity and wildlife. 
in Scotland, there was particularly a lot of culling done a few years ago of mountain hares because they are associated with a tick, like an insect, a tick, that carries a disease which can make grouse ill. But it was also found that that tick was on sheep and on deer, so it wasn't particularly down to mountain hares transmitting that tick, but a few years ago they were culled because of that sort of sense or that perception. But now they're sort of protected against culling unless it's in, under exceptional circumstances. And then s someone or once or twice people will say, well, do mountain hares eat so much heather that they're competing with the grouse? I read a study that said you would need hundreds and hundreds of hares uh, for that to occur. It's really not likely, and certainly not in the Peak District. We don't have that density of hares at all. Mm, so they're safe? They're safe. They survive on grouse moors and on the blanket bogs. Sometimes we get reports of people going out with lurcher dogs mm. and those will chase the hares, so, which is illegal. Mm and uh, sometimes killing the hares. Sometimes there's the reports of shooting hares, hunting hares. That is legal at the moment. And sometimes hares will be snared or the carcasses of a hare will be used as bait for foxes because farmers or gamekeepers want to shoot foxes because they're predators of grouse or other you know, animals. Mm. And... It's a tricky one, that is, because if we're using an iconic animal of a mountain hare, its carcass as a bait, it sends us an odd message to society, even though I think, from a practical perspective, it's what is effectively a deceased animal that's, you know, a bit of meat to use as a bait. But it doesn't send a very clear message to a general public who sees it as a cute, fluffy creature. You've made your um, assessment of the hare population. Do you think the hare population here is stable, going up, going down? Or how do you see the future going for the hares of the Peak District? It seems like they have been stable. This last year, my raw count data, so before I do the statistics, the, just the basic count data was down by about 50% compared to the previous five years. But the populations do cycle, so they rise and fall. So I'm wondering that they will increase and bounce back this year or next year. But in the long term, the major threat to mountain hares in the Peak District is climate change. Mm. And what we see is the temperature is forecast to increase by between two and four degrees here in the Peak District. Oh, yeah, locally, yeah. And what's going to happen is, in the winter, at the moment, or maybe 10 or 20 years ago, the average temperature was about minus two. I mean, it's pretty cold now, actually, but it's minus two was the average winter temperature. So if it gets to plus two it goes above the freezing point, and that means there's less or no snow. And without the snow, 
mountain hares don't have so much competitive advantage. Mm. So they do like snow and they do like cold. And so the climate change forecasts that uh, we produced predicted that the range of mountain hares would shrink from 170 square kilometres down to 20 square kilometres yeah. within about 30 years. Mm. So their prospects, because of climate change, do not look good. Mm. And they're a bit like having, you know, metaphorically, polar bears. Mm. Polar bear is the symbol of climate change. But so is the mountain hare. Mm. And so if we're living in Sheffield or Manchester or Huddersfield, we can come out on the moors today and see mountain hares. But will we be able to do that in 30 years' time? Mm. Or will our children come out and see mountain hares? And if not, that is the climate change indicator that human beings have been unkind to this planet. And the mountain hare is the symbol of that. What can we all do? Stop using our log burners, stop driving cars and going on fancy holidays on flights. Eat less meat. Yeah, these are all the things that we can we do all, as good citizens. We all know what we can do, don't yeah. we? Yeah. Is there anything more locally that can be done to protect hares? I guess maybe more rewetting. Well, looking after the, yeah, looking after the, the, the blanket bog restoration is fantastic for mountain hares. So more of that. It's not complete. There's still a lot more to be done. The other thing that we may think about is that there are some major trunk roads that bisect the Peak District. In particular, the Snake Pass, A57, between Glossop and Sheffield, the Saddleworth Road, it's the A635, etc. They have a lot of roadkill mountain hares, particularly in the springtime when hares are going out looking for mates and so forth. And herring about. Exactly. Mm. So my counts were about 200 dead mountain hares each year, mm. which is 10% of the population. Wow. Mountain hares typically come out in the evening so that seems to be in the evening or at night when they get killed. If people were to reduce their speeds at certain locations that would uh, reduce the roadkill yeah. which would be very helpful. And it's an animal welfare issue. It's not just a population management issue. It's just like, well, you oh, don't really want to hit an animal and kill it or injure it. I do remember one day on home moss within about 100 metres I'd got four fresh mm. mountain hare carcasses mm. that had been killed over the previous week. It's mm. quite sad. If someone wants to come and see mountain hare, any tips? Come out in the afternoon in late March and walk slowly and quietly and use binoculars and look very carefully. And with a bit of luck and fortune, you may see a mountain hare. Should you keep your dogs on leads? Absolutely. <laughs> Always on the moors, keep your dog on the lead. Be kind to the mountain hares and the birds and anything that's living naturally on the moors. And are there any organisations or bodies that 
people could support if they're interested in hair conservation or finding out more about hairs? That's a really nice question, thank you. So there are two particular charities that sponsored this hair research. One is Hair Preservation Trust, who do a marvellous job for mountain hairs and brown hairs. And the other is the People's Trust for Endangered Species, who also research many other creatures as well, including overseas. They're a fantastic charity also. And lastly, what has the hair taught you? Mountain hair has taught me that Bleaklow is a fun place full of exciting adventures <laughs> and I've probably enjoyed myself here more than in Montana in the forests <laughs> actually because the mountain hair every year surprises me with something new. Thank you very much for talking to us today and you're carrying on surveying, aren't you? Absolutely. I'm year going out. Year. I'm going out on Monday doing some surveys and uh, each year it's now the seventh year. I think in this country at least it's the longest running geo-referenced mountain hair survey. Mm. Okay, well, long last the mountain hair and the mountain hair survey. Thank you. <laughs> we have to cross this fence. <laughs> Don't get lost because you can die up here. Yeah, they usually have one or two people die up here each year. Yeah. Yeah, it's quite a serious place.